when you hear the word, the word comfort, I wonder what that conjures up in your, in your mind, in your hearts. Perhaps a, a comfort food that you turn to, a comfort drink that you turn to in times where you're feeling a little bit ragged, or the comfort of a sofa uh, after a very long and you know, kind of arduous week at work. Or maybe you've gone out for a walk in a crisp kind of winter's day and you come back and you snuggle in front of the fire on the nice warm uh, kind of uh, and, and comfortable sofa, whatever it may be. Maybe it's a piece of clothing that you turn to. Comfortable pair of pyjamas on a day where you just want to sit in and do very little. Or maybe it's just a hug with your mum. Comfort is found in all of these kind of lovely things. Comfort, if you were to turn to a dictionary, would be defined as a state of ease and freedom from pain. Now we all want many of those things and many more of those things, don't we? And there's nothing wrong with wanting that to a degree. I was reading uh, this week that in America, a number of universities, state universities, have sought to comfort their students following the election and now inauguration of President Donald Trump. Such is the pain, inverted commas there I think, uh, felt by students, that a number of the universities have provided rather extraordinary means of comfort for their students. Uh, A few universities have provided crying rooms so that students can be comforted by counsellors in those rooms and just cry it out. Other universities have brought in animals that students can pet, a pony, a dog, and a few cats in other places. Another uh, university put on a a number of self-care activities, including colouring. And these are university students blowing bubbles and sculpting Play-Doh. Well, as you can imagine, I'm not making any comments about these things at all. As you can imagine, Republican state governors have had enough and have sought to remove funding from those universities that offer these kind of extraordinary means of comfort. Now, the Republican campaign, because everything in America seems to be a campaign, the Republican campaign is sensitively called Suck It Up Buttercup. (laughs) Soon there will be no election comfort paid for by the state universities. Now, we joke aside... um, whether it's the pain of an election result or the pain that we all feel through the ups and downs of this life. We all seek comfort, don't we, in various ways. We all seek comfort in various ways. But we do so, don't we, I think, understanding the limitation of any means of comfort. A hug is only momentary. A warm fire will always die out. And a pair of pyjamas will never suffice. Now we seek comfort, but we, and we know we all need it at times, but we often truly never find it. The problem is when we forget where true comfort, lasting comfort is found, we begin to look for comfort in places that probably we ought not to be looking. Oh, you might feel all sorts of pain throughout your life, the pain of singleness or longing for intimacy. Perhaps you feel lonely, you feel lost, you feel frustrated. You desperately want more of something. You want things to be different. You want the pain to go away or just to feel a little bit lighter. What do you do? I guess there's two ways you can go. You can be the perennial ostrich, 
putting your head in the sand and trying to deny the reality of pain in your life, or you struggle around looking for momentary comfort in means that are often ungodly, unhelpful, and means that you know will never last. Uh, The problem many of us have is that if we live ignoring the place of ultimate comfort, if we ignore the reality of our need for comfort, then we will live a life often full of frustration and often full of pain. And that is a possible reality because the Christian life is not all plain sailing. It is not pain-free, comfort and ease. We are to expect pain, trial and suffering. That reality sits right at the centre of our passage today. See, strangely, it is a passage that is littered with comfort. In fact, this is the passage that has the most concentrated uh, numbers of use of that word comfort in anywhere in the whole Bible. Uh, Here's a geeky statistic for you geeks out there. Of the 33 uses of the word comfort in the New Testament, 10 appear here in noun or verb form. The passage is big on comfort, but it is also very big on trials, suffering, troubles. Why? Well, if you're a Christian here today, then you have to know this reality. If you do not know it already, and it's the first point, it's the, our opening point on your sheets, we share in the sufferings of Christ. We share in the sufferings of Christ. This reality sits absolutely central to our passage today and very much central to, the passage, to this whole book. Everything that we read today is related to or flows from this reality. Look at verse 5 with me, if you may. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. There's a link there. We'll look at it as we go through. But notice that first element. There's a solidarity in and through our faith union with Christ. If you are a Christian here today, you have been promised by Christ that as one of his followers, you will suffer. You will suffer. For example, as G- I'll go just turn, just not so you don't believe this little passage here, but let's look at it a little more, more broadly, if you like. Jesus in Mark 14, for example, verse 27 says, I will strike, he's quoting from Zechariah, uh, he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That quote there from Zechariah 17, he wasn't just referring to the time of his arrest, which is the time in Mark 14, but beyond to the scattering of his followers until the day he returns. Through our faith union with Christ, we are one with Jesus. Hence why Jesus says, for example, in Matthew 25, verse 45, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, that is withholding food is the context there, you did not do for me. He's saying that that there is a link here. If you do not do that, you're not doing it for me. We're united in both what we give, what is given to us and what is taken from us in suffering. When Paul himself had persecuted Christians so terribly, what did the risen Lord Jesus say to him on the road to Damascus in in Acts chapter 9? He says, Saul, Saul, because that was his name before he was uh, Paul. He says, Saul, Saul, why did you persecute me? He'd been persecuting the Christians. But Jesus says, why did you persecute me? Because we are united with Christ. 
Peter understands the same principle in 1 Peter 4 verse 13. Uh, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. In the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You see the time before we meet Christ face to face in heaven. Is a time where Christians will share in the sufferings of Christ. From verse 3 to 7. Suffering, trouble or trial is mentioned 17 times, directly or indirectly. Now I know that we may never be flogged, beaten, stoned. But take, if we, but we take a moment to remember that many Christians and brothers and sisters around the world will be today. They will face those kind of trials for declaring that Jesus is their Lord and Saviour. But we do not escape. We do not escape the troubles that Paul speaks of here. Interestingly, the word trouble there in verse 4, it, it really kind of contains the idea of pressure, a downward pressure, pressure that we will experience as a result of being a Christian, pressure as a result of faithfully following Jesus today. Now, oh, the pressure will be different for every single one of us and different for Christians around the world. It may be for us just a pressure to conform to the way that our friends are living. The way that our friends are thinking. Pressure to not say anything about what we believe. Pressure to just, oh, don't say it so strongly. Just, just water it down a little bit. Just make it more palatable what you think. I guess many of us will feel that kind of pressure daily. And Paul clearly felt it. Even to the point of death, he felt a huge pressure. You can read of that in verse 9. A huge pressure, even to the point of death. But the principle remains. If we are faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is inevitable that we experience pressure and troubles for our faith. We share in the sufferings of Christ. Though this reality and principle lies at the heart of this passage, we cannot ignore what are really interlocking principles that Paul spells out to encourage the Corinthian church. I mean, you have to imagine, if that was it, if that was just the whole passage, we just kind of left it there, we're sharing the sufferings of Christ, we would leave fairly miserable today, I feel. Imagine if the Christian life was just, all I could say was, it's suffering, trial and trouble. No comfort, no joy, no hope. Thankfully that is not true, just if you were zoning out for a moment there. But before we look at those other interlocking principles, remember the broader picture in this letter. If I cast you back to last week, if I can. Remember Paul, what he's trying to do here is he's trying to defend his apostolic ministry. A ministry that has been littered with suffering. As we saw last week in verses 1 and 2, Paul, he describes himself as an apostle of the ultimate apostle, the ultimate sent one, namely Jesus. But they both come by the will of God. And he writes to the church of God in Corinth. And Paul's point is very simple. He says the church of God must listen to the apostle of God. That is his authority coming by the will of God really matters. And it is not undermined 
by the sufferings and the trials and the troubles of his life, which were massive. The glorious news, you see, that Paul spells out here is that in and through trials and troubles and pressures, the faithful follower of Jesus Christ will know the comfort of God. The comfort of God. We're going to spend some time looking at this now. It's our first main point. God comforts us. God comforts us. Let's look at verse 3 and we'll see that there. See, Paul opens it, what will be the, the main part of his letter. Interestingly, with the, it's a traditional kind of opening words that have been used within the Jewish synagogues. But here, what he's done is he's slightly Christianised them, if you like. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father, which would have been the traditional opening, but of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now what Paul is doing here is he's testifying to the, the work of God in his own life, in and through Christ, with these words of praise. Words that would have been, yes, very familiar in many ways, that their ears would have pricked up, but yet slightly different because they're, they are more Christ-centred. God is the, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first readers would have taken note here. But importantly notice that God is the Father of compassion, but also the source of all compassion. Paul describes God there, look at it, as the God of all comfort. All comfort. These words of comfort would have pointed the readers back to the reading we heard earlier. Do you remember we heard it from Isaiah chapter 40? Now God's call to Isaiah there was to comfort, comfort my people. But God also pointed forwards through the prophet to raise an expectation that the coming Messiah, of which chapter 40 to 66 of, of Isaiah is very much pointing forward to the Messianic age, that the Messiah would be the comforter. Later on in Isaiah 66, for example, God's Comfort is pictured in terms of motherly tenderness. Let me read a little verse from Isaiah 66. It says, As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in or over Jerusalem. You see, to the, the readers here, the, the contrast could not be more stark. The gods of, of kind of culture and current, the Greek kind of mythology there, they were indifferent to human suffering. They, no, they, they wouldn't relate to that at all. They couldn't be known. <coughs> and they had no influence in the lives of people. By contrast, what we see here is the God of all comfort, the God revealed in the Bible, we can know him. And he is the God of all comfort in our lives. He's the creating source of all comforts. And he is active and longing to comfort us. But how? How? Well, interestingly, if you were to look at uh, Luke 2, for example, when Jesus was presented at the temple, there are godly men and women there, Simeon and Anna, for example, and they've been waiting for God's comfort, God's consolation, uh, that comfort that would come to God's people, Israel. And they both recognise in Jesus, he is the answer. As the Messiah, God's comfort, comes through the promised one. Because he alone is the one who can bring ultimate comfort to his people. Salvation has been revealed in and through the Messiah, who will bring ultimate comfort. See, the biblical idea of comfort is not the hot chocolate in front of the fire. 
The biblical picture of comfort is a strengthening, an encouragement, a willing to stand by someone so that they might endure as they wait for the ultimate comfort, that deliverance to salvation. And verse 3 is assuring us that God is the source of comfort, but an exclusive source in many ways. For no enduring or eternal comfort comes apart from him. Look at Paul's experience of God's comfort, if you can, with me in verse 4. The God of all comfort at the end of verse 3, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now you have to remember who's writing this. Remember, it's Paul. Now, in history, there is no man, I don't think you can find, who's been afflicted more than him. If you want to turn to chapter 11, you could, and you could see the list of all his afflictions. Maybe not all, but certainly a big list. Five times he received 40 lashes minus one. Most people never survive one of those. But throughout all his life of suffering, after suffering, trial after trial, Paul can still say of God that, look at it in verse 4, he comforts us in all, all our troubles. In Lystra, think about that, when he was stoned. Those last stones, when, when, the, when someone's being stoned, they surround the person. The last stones were always the biggest stones. In a sense, to, to make the, the biggest and, and kind of deathly blow. As if the person lay so semi-conscious on the ground, having been stoned for a while, with smaller stones, the biggest ones would be reserved for the end, and they'd be thrown in order to crush and to kill. Even then, God was comforting Paul. Drifting on high seas, floggings, being stoned, 40 lashes again and again and again. And every single time, God... Paul can say of God, sorry, God comforts us in all our troubles. God comforts us in all our troubles. And you could replace 40 lashes with anything that you know and have experienced. Any trial that you have had to go through, the answer will still be the same. What is it for you? Death of a loved one, a miscarriage, disability. God comforts us in all our troubles. Singleness, loneliness, not able to have children. God comforts us in all our troubles. Being ostracised because you dare to share your faith with some friends. God comforts us in all our troubles. But you see, the comfort of God is not a pair of pyjamas. It's not a warm mug of hot chocolate. We must be clear that the comfort of God doesn't remove us from the sufferings and trials of this world. But it isn't so removed as to be ineffectual and of no use today. God comforts Paul in the present through his trials and suffering. Yes, he feels the pain of the lashes and the stonings, but he simultaneously knows and feels the comfort of God in those times. But he knows the comfort of God in and, in and through the future salvation that is secured for him in Christ. 
and those that stand beside him and remind him of that hope and that truth. Jesus doesn't say to his followers, life will be pain-free, guys. We're about to get that to that point in Mark's Gospel, aren't we? Well, we'll see exactly what Jesus promises his followers. But he does promise you a pain-free eternity. And that sure and certain reality is the comfort of God that people should stand beside you and whisper in your ear and hold your hand and hug you as you go through the trials of this life. And for what purpose is that comfort that we can know today? Well, we see it, it's a little kind of sub-point, that we're to comfort others. Look at verse 4. God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now these verses show us, yes, we're united with God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are also united to one another. Therefore, the comfort that we receive from God as we trust Christ through our trials, as we're supported in and through those trials by the people that we know, as they stand by us, encourage us through them, that has a purpose. It's so that we can likewise give and receive that comfort as we can support others. In a sense, what, is, what we see here is a cyclical nature to the comfort of God. It's never to stop with the one who receives it. Rather, we see the word is in verse 5, it is to abound. Literally, the word there is to overflow to others. God comforted Paul, you see, for example, by the coming of Titus uh, to Macedonia. You can read of that in chapter 7, verse 6. Just as Titus had been comforted by the Corinthians, we read in chapter 7, verse 7. And surprise, surprise, it goes full circle. Because then that comfort is to overflow. The comfort of God back to the Corinthians here via Paul. See, the comfort of God should flow from each and every one of us around the church, abounding from one another. That isn't possible, though, in many churches today. Because often people are so afraid and frightened of such intimate relationships where others in church uh, can comfort one another. Stand by one another. Keep reminding, whispering in their ears of the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate comfort that we will know as we are saved by him. We have to know each other. We have to be in each other's lives. As Paul puts it in Romans 12, for example, rejoice with those who rejoice, but mourn with those who mourn. We have to be there. We can't do that if we don't share our lives with each other. We may be going through all sorts of trials, feeling so weak, yet God will provide. He will provide people around us to point us to the ultimate comfort found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the end result, though, quickly, verse 6 and verse 7. <coughs> if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we, we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We must remember that the sufferings and trials Paul speaks of here are primary trials in ministry. 
as he makes the Lord Jesus known. As we serve the Lord Jesus ourselves and make him home, we will face all kinds of pressure. But we must cling to the truth that God in his mercy and his comfort will meet us in our need. We may feel incredibly weak at times as we speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe to a loved one, maybe to a colleague, maybe to neighbours who think they will never want to know. All they want to talk about is the gutter. But God's power and comfort is always greater than our weakness. The reality of being a Christian is not health, wealth and prosperity as some very sadly teach. It's not that any of those things are wrong. But if we faithfully proclaim Christ, we must expect pressure and trouble. But overwhelming that pressure and that trouble is God's comfort, which we experience as we patiently endure. Paul is not glorifying suffering here. Let's be clear, we're not to seek it. We must not live our lives under the weight of trials to come either, because we live under God's good providence. But here we see that suffering is used by God to make his comfort, that is, his ultimate salvation, more present and known in our lives. So we share in the sufferings of Christ. But God overwhelmingly comforts us. In the ultimate sense, but also now, as we stand by one another and encourage one another. But that comfort is to abound, to overflow within the church as we are to comfort others. Let's move on and look at this second section. As we see, uh, in a sense, a, a practical application of this is God delivers us in our second point. God delivers us. What Paul is doing here is he's, he's really just spelling out for his re- readers how God uses the pressure, the trial, the, the struggle, the affliction within his life. He does this as he tells them about a very dramatic uh, personal example of this in his life and his ministry. It happens in Asia, we read in, in verse 8, probably Ephesus. We don't know the specifics. We can guess at a few things. We don't know the, the specifics. So look at verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. The great pressure that was far beyond our ability to endure is is a phrase that would actually be used. That pressure phrase would be used to describe a boat going out of a dock that had been overladen. You know, as it's sunk in the water, and you kind of think, if that turns, if that tacks and goes to the ground, well, it's going to sink. Yeah, you kind of think it's, it's got too much on it, it's too much pressure. And Paul's experience, you see, was just overwhelming. So much so, he expected death itself. It seemed inevitable to him. Look at verse 9. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Not death itself, but the sentence of death. It was inevitable, it was coming. And you've got to remember at this point, Paul has been stoned, he's been beaten, he's been flogged, he's been shipwrecked, he's, 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 everything has happened to Paul. He knows what kind of being close looks like. And this is the point where he goes, no, this is it. No, it's going to happen, we're going to die here. 
We don't know exactly what happened in Asia or Ephesus. We don't know where this pressure would come from. It could have been the riots mentioned in the book of Acts, for example. We can't be sure. But Paul was sure of the purpose. Look at the end of verse 9. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Note the present tense. He raises the dead. It's a timeless present tense to express the eternal attribute of God. The creator God who we can know in and through trusting the Lord Jesus Christ is in the business of life giving. Of raising people from the dead. Yes, our final resurrection. Yeah, that's in the future, isn't it? Well, there'll be no more crying and pain. But life now, through faith in Jesus Christ, is in a sense a resurrection. We'll see in chapter 5 that we are new creations. This is what baptism symbolises, which is why every Christian should be baptised in obedience to Jesus. But in a sense, to symbolise that new creation that we are. If you're not baptised and you're a Christian here today, speak to me afterwards or afterwards. As we serve Christ, troubles and afflictions bring us down, as, it, as Paul says here, to the point of death. But the process is such that that should lead to a resurrection. They lead us to trust in God, the life giver, who one who raises people from the dead. Friends, I hope you don't have the kind of a slightly kind of glossy, kind of romantic view of the Christian life. If you are a faithful follower of Jesus, a Christian here today, that is that you stick your neck out occasionally, in a culturally savvy and sensible way, but you stick your neck out and you faithfully declare Jesus as your Lord and Saviour and, and ask people to come and, and to find out more about him. If you do that, this is the pattern you should expect. Afflictions, <coughs> a sentence of death, but to be raised up as you trust in the Lord. We're to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We'll see in Mark's Gospel soon. Afflictions, <coughs> death, resurrection. That's the pattern of the Christian life. But it is a pattern that is riddled with hope. As Paul says, look at verse 10. Sorry, we're kind of running through this at the end here. Look at verse 10. He's, he's delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to, to deliver us. Deliver, deliver, deliver. You see, there's going to be no doubt that God, whatever you're going through, whatever trial you're going through, as you faithfully declare the Lord Jesus Christ, God will deliver you. God has delivered his people in his past. He's pointing people back to the sure and certain deliverance. You think back to the Exodus and so many other stories that we know of in the Old Testament. He will ultimately deliver us in the future when Christ returns. But you see, our hope for tomorrow is set because we can trust that God will deliver us. Sometimes even from our day-to-day -day trials. Of course, we, we must recognise that God's deliverances in this life are, are, can only be, ever be partial. We, we may recover from an illness, but one day we will die. We may proclaim Christ and we may feel an affliction. We, we may suffer for making Christ known. 
It's only in Christ on the last day we will know perfect deliverance. Let's be clear about that. But God does deliver us. And how are we to respond? Lastly, we're to pray with thanksgiving. Look at verse 11. He speaks of God's deliverance as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now let's be clear, God delivers us, but he, he doesn't need our prayers. He is sovereign. But God is glorified, and those that pray give thanks as God delivers, in line with our prayers. The church today needs ministers, and it needs missionaries, and it needs servants of the gospel, like Paul. People who are willing to suffer to make Christ known. And in some ways, such suffering is essential and should be expected. Because in and through those afflictions, we are taken down to a death. But we are also raised as we rely on God. God who delivers as we pray with thanksgiving. Let's pray as we close. <coughs> Heavenly Father, none of us can, can expect in a sense the life of Paul. He is a unique man as an apostle of the Lord Jesus. His sufferings were, in that sense, unique. But as a faithful servant, a sent one, so we will, we pray that we will be faithful sent ones. So we should expect, similarly, a pressure, a trial, if we faithfully declare you as Lord and Saviour. But in and through that, I pray that we would know your comfort and your deliverance. Ultimately, in the sense that we know the Lord Jesus Christ will deliver us from all pain and trial one day when we meet him face to face. But I pray that we would know your comfort and deliverance today as we stand by one another, as we whisper in each other's ears of that ultimate deliverance in Christ, as we weep with each other as we hug each other, as we just live lives with each other. Because then we will know your comfort. And then we'll be able to rely more and more on you, honouring you, praising you, giving you thanks for your great deliverance in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you.